Now there are three chapters that Paul dedicates to the matter of judging believers. In his letter to the, the first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 5 he says, It is reported that there is sexual immorality among you. All right? He's not saying here it is reported that there's sexual immorality in the world. That's a given. That would be pretty stupid to say that, that there's sexual immorality in the world. This is about the church. This is about judging those who are sexually immoral in the church and other things. But it is reported that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles. And he delineates the case of the man who is living with his father's wife and says that you should rather be be in mourning that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. He might be put out from among you, whether by death or by exclusion. And then he says, For I indeed, as absent in the body, yet present in the Spirit, have already judged as though I were present. In other words, I have the authority to judge a man who is living with his father's wife amongst you, who yet claims to be a believer. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you have gathered together along with my Spirit, and with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's evoking divine authority and he says, when you're gathered together my spirit and so on, deliver such a one to Satan. It would be ridiculous for him to be advising that approach to an unbeliever, wouldn't it? You're delivering the unbeliever to Satan? That's where he is already. He's speaking clearly, unequivocally in the context of someone among you who says he's a believer. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why? Because he has a problem with his flesh that he will not give up, even though he has named the name of Christ, even though he has walked forward, given the preacher his hand, said he gave God his heart, and now is in the church in Corinth but he's continuing to be an unbeliever. You're required to judge him. Paul said, I'm present in spirit. I'm present in the authority of Christ. The Lord Jesus is present with us. Hand him over to Satan. Judge it. And then he says, your glorying is not good because you are permitting the contamination of the whole body inasmuch as a little leaven leavens. Purge out the old leaven. And then he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually moral people, yet I certainly do not mean with the sexually moral people of this world. Is is that clear? Can you see the distinction? He's saying you'd have to go out of the world if you're not keeping company with the sexually moral of the world. But as it regards the church, judge the matter. 
Yet I certainly do, and then he goes on to say, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, and extortioner, not even eat with such a person who is called a brother. And then he says, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you, you, do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. They're already condemned. And then he goes on to talk about uh, the immoral brother, continuing the same thing in chapter 6. He's saying, judge the matter. Look, selective passages, verse 5, 2 uh, Corinthians 6. I say this to your shame, it is not that there is not, isn't there wise men among you who may be able to judge these things? And he says, instead you're going to courts to resolve these matters. You, have a, you should have this tradition of judging matters among yourselves and so on. And then he says, then he comes to the place of saying, if the unbelieving husband, if a woman has a husband, this is chapter 7 verse 12, all within this sequence of judging various things that are out of order in the church. If a wife uh, has an, uh, an unbelieving husband who is willing to live with him, uh, with her, let, uh, if, if a brother has a wife who does not believe, she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Now, here is the more common case and it's already been addressed copiously in the previous chapters. The case of someone who names the name of Christ but lives immorally. That's the, that's the issue. What do you mean live immorally? Their conduct is not consistent with the standards of Christ. How, how would that look? So you have a, a, a woman who says, or you have a man who says, um, I don't necessarily agree that I can't have sex with someone with whom I am not married while I'm married to my wife. Um, I'm going to do that. What then? And he, and he claims to be uh, a member of the congregation. He's a pew sitter on Sundays. What then? I might say, not an uncommon occurrence. Or flip it over, if you wish. A woman who's having an adulterous affair. But yet, continues to be in the church. Well, as long as it's not known, there's not much you can do about it. But once it's known, you cannot let it go. 
once it's known. But let's make the matter broader because Paul made the matter broader. He said such things as, in the previous chapter, he gave a whole series of things that, that must be judged. Um, for example, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunken, reviling, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. This is what constitutes being an unbeliever yet. So when the matter is known, how ought it be addressed? Or when the matter is known, what should happen? Well, Matthew 18 gives us a definitive roadmap as to how these matters ought be addressed. Beginning at, uh, let's see, Matthew 18, I want to go to uh, verse 15. Again, you don't have to speculate. These things simply haven't been done, but it doesn't mean we should continue to ignore them. So here, here is the procedure for holding a, someone who says he's a brother accountable but who has not uh, conformed and has no intentions of conforming to the standard of Christ. You don't just go up and say, well, I heard through a grapevine that you've been living an immoral life. I'm not going to keep any company with you. There's a process by which this is all excavated and brought into the light and judged. My charge against the church is that it has dreadfully, shamefully neglected to judge matters. In this uh, thinnest of excuses, judge not that ye be not judged. And I, I, I'll, I'll come to that as well. But how can you escape the preponderance of the scriptural evidence that requires us to judge? Not the world. They are already subject to the judgment of God, condemned already. You don't have to judge them, they are already bound over. But it is about not allowing the little leaven to leaven the whole lump. It's about removing those who bring reproach to the name of the Lord through a juridical process. Now here's how it begins. There, there are different processes that might be engaged, but this one is uncontrovertible in its clarity. Matthew 18, 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between the two of you, just between the two of you. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, 
tell it to the church. And if he refuses to hear the church, let him be like a heathen and a tax collector. That's when you treat a brother as an unbeliever. You treat him like a heathen and a tax collector after this process. So if the woman has an unbelieving husband who is behaving in a sexually moral way, there is an adjudication that will allow you to treat him as an unbeliever, in which case the believer is free of the unbeliever. Not bound means you're free. That's that's the language of 1 Corinthians 7. You're free to remarry. That's what it says. Why? Well, I'll come to that in a moment. Let's just look at the adjudicatory process. First, if he sins against you, go and tell him his fault between the two of you. So, whether it's a man or a woman who is engaged in unrighteous conduct, especially if it relates to the issue, but not exclusively, that's the key, not exclusively. If it is related to uh, uh, adultery, but not exclusively, because we are to judge in all of these matters, all of which might result in a person being treated as an unbeliever who is handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What's the first thing to be done? Go and tell him his fault just between the two of you. Point out quietly, the one who has been wronged is the one with the responsibility to go to the one who has wronged him or her. What if, in the case of the woman who has a husband who is committing adultery, or cheating on her, lying to her, being an unbeliever, what then? Well, the likelihood is that she will say, if I go and tell him, he will get mad at me and may even hit me. Now, the elders of the church should be sufficiently aware of the character of such a person to make a decision as to whether or not he has a violent nature. In which case, two or three witnesses should accompany the woman for her safety. This is true in regards to whether or not it's marriage, but since we're focused on the subject matter of marriage, if there's any possibility of a violent reaction, we go to taking the two or three witnesses. But frankly, such matters 
should never be in controversy because everybody in the body of Christ should have a spiritual father. And the spiritual father should know the condition of that son. And if a charge is brought against that son, then there should be an easy and direct way to approach that son. The problem is that we have people sitting in congregations, sitting in pews, who have no connection to the leadership or for that matter anybody else. And of course there is no way to approach them. We have this profoundly broken system that cannot respond to the plain teachings of Scripture and yet we keep insisting that that's the right system. No, you should be able to go and talk to anybody who claims to be a brother because they should be subject to some form of divine authority, mainly that of having a spiritual father. If you have people who claim to be believers but say, I don't care what you think about what I do, I'm not going to change. Listen carefully. They are not in the kingdom of God because everyone in the kingdom of God is subject to the authority of the king. And that authority comes, hear me now, that authority comes in the form of someone whom the offender must recognize as having the authority of Christ. If he or she recognizes no one in their lives as having the authority of Christ, tell me how are they connected to the body of Christ? They're not, they're not. But in this environment in which you can quickly go from one church to another and avoid having to change or be confronted, nobody has to be subject to anything. That's why the condition of the church is as it is. Nobody's strong, nobody is, uh, is growing up, they're weak and sick and die prematurely. But I am talking about the body of Christ as it actually is, not this fiction that has been created in the offsprings of the, of the church state model. If someone has no one in the body of Christ who has authority in their lives, they're not connected to the body of Christ. They're simply pew-sitters. If you're connected to Christ, His authority over you is tangibly expressed in a relationship in which you will honor the authority of Christ. There is no such thing as the country music song, Me and Jesus. Okay? 
and the matter should be judged. The reason you tell it to the church, the reason you have two or three witnesses is to accurately certify the record so that it's no longer he said or she said. These two or three witnesses act as judges. They ask questions. They are witnesses, they are martyrs in the sense that they lay down their lives for the reconciliation of the two in conflict. If it happens to be husband and wife, they will as readily correct the one bringing the accusation if there's a need for correction as they would correct the one for whom there is a need or an accusation if, if the accusation is proven to be correct. And then they certify the record and tell it to the church so that everybody is not then required to find, to be their own fact finders because you've already have two or three witnesses who've laid down their lives, who are impartial and who now have a certified record. The intent is whoever might have influence upon the person who is still holding out might entreat them to repent. Why? Because this entire process is meant to be redemptive. It is not meant to be punitive, it is meant to be redemptive. Even the step, even the step of handing him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh is redemptive because the problem is the soul is stronger than the spirit and needs to be devoured. And it's the unique place of Satan in creation to devour the flesh, to devour the dust. So even that is meant to be redemptive. The church must make a decision. I, I had occasion fairly recently to be asked about this and the case was that of a woman who was married to a man who routinely cheated on her, committed adultery and lied routinely. They couldn't pin, pin him down and the church just did not take a stand. The woman ended up filing for divorce and got a divorce. But then the issue became, could she remarry? And in classic fashion, elders of the church would privately express their support for her but none of them would go on the record because they live in this state of confusion, not knowing what the truth is or how to handle the truth, how to adjudicate matters. They refuse to judge it, whispered to her, we would understand if you got married or we'd understand if you divorce him. We're not sure if you should remarry but we know that he's no uh, he's no catch. They utterly failed the woman. Let me say it again, this leadership is a classic failure, doesn't represent God, does not adjudicate according to Scripture and fails the people who trust them.
This is not leadership. This is cowardice. This is, and this is ignorance. Such a man was an unbeliever. Though he named the name of Christ, he remained in an unsaved mindset and way of life and should have been judged in that condition and put out of the church. Should have been. Wasn't. We've had other instances where, I'll flip it around, woman enjoys the benefit of a stable, godly husband, but is consumed by, by the desire for material security and afraid to trust God, though numerous approaches had been made to encourage her to come on, to come on in the things of God, to the point where the husband could not go on in the things of God and meet her requirements at the same time. After entreaty, after entreaty, after entreaty, this woman was treated as an unbeliever because despite what she said, her motivation was not to obey the Lord, she had no interest in anything but her personal financial security. What the Lord said, what the Lord meant for her, such as, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. She had no intentions of doing that and actually said so. The counsel was, put her away. Treat her as an unbeliever because there is no such thing as a citizen of the kingdom who is exempt from the rule of Christ. You don't get to make up your own rules and you don't get to remain a child all the days of your life, 25, 30, 40 years later, you don't get to remain a child and cause the one who wants to go on in the things of God, cause them to stumble. It's time for the church to be mature, to act appropriately in judging matters and not countenance the wickedness, the ignoring of the truths of the scriptures and hide behind that in the hope of finding uh, material security. The final question, and it seems a silly question considering the preponderance of the requirements in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7 to judge the church. What then about the statement from that the Lord Jesus Christ made uh, in, in uh, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, which says, Judge not that you be not judged. Anybody who says that this is a prohibition against judgment 
simply, me, simply needs to read the whole thing. Matthew 7 says, Matthew 7 is not a prohibition against judging. Matthew 7 is a prohibition against unrighteous judging, an elementary doctrine. One of the elementary doctrines is eternal judgments. You should be able to judge from an eternal point of view, which is to say you see things the way God sees them and judge accordingly, not by the bias and prejudice of having determined what outcome you want before you start the process of judging. So he says, Judge not that you be not judged, for what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Pretty straightforward. You'll be judged by the same standard by which you judge, so do not judge by a false standard. Simple. Simple. Let's see if that's what's borne out in the passage. And the measure you use, it will be used to measure back to you. Well, that's pretty straightforward. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own? In other words, you are dreadfully incompetent to judge a lesser matter when you yourself are overwhelmed and caught up in a greater matter, like a speck and a plank. First, he says, remove uh, the speck from your, remove the plank from your own eye. So prepare to judge. And then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. According to the judge not theory that you can't judge anything, the speck remains in your brother's eye. You can't help your brother. That was the silliness of the Pope who said, who am I to judge? Well, everybody who needs righteous judgment that look to you for righteous judgment remain partially blind. If, you've got, if you're admitting to having a plank in your own eye, remove the plank so you could help your brother see more clearly by being able to remove the speck from your own eye. So, it's not a prohibition against judgment. It is a prohibition against false and unrighteous judgments. Nowhere is that principle more clearly delineated than in the 82nd Psalm, which requires us to judge righteously. And I, I will simply refer to it and and have you read it. Because this psalm looks at us as the Elohim of God. Here it is. God stands in the congregation of the mighty and He judges amongst the gods. The word for gods there is the word Elohim. It's the same word for God as it is for gods. So that word Elohim is the, is the root word from which the English word majesty comes. So when you refer to the majesty of God, 
It's the term Elohim. Majesty is the root of the term magistrates. So the majesty of God is seen in the righteousness of His judgments, which are altogether just. And that's the, that's the, the context of the psalm, because what does he say next, using that understanding? How long will you judge unjustly? Shall I read it again? How long will you judge unjustly? The prohibition is never against judging, the prohibition is always against unjustly judging. Why? Because you're falsely handling the authority of God. Look, he says, and show partiality to the wicked. Is that considered just judgment or unjust? Is that eternal judgment or corrupt judgment? Defend the poor and the fatherless. That would be righteous judgment, would it not? That would be consistent with the standard of the Elohim. And you're called to do that. He's not saying, don't do this, judge not, therefore you can't defend the poor and the fatherless. You can't do justice to the afflicted and the needy. You can't deliver the poor and the needy and free them from the hand of the wicked. If you can't judge, you can't do any of those things. But if you judge unjustly, then you are violating the very principle of the Elohim, of the magisterium of God to set things in order. That's why he says, they do not understand, they walk about in darkness. And because they do, listen to this, all the foundations of the earth are unstable. When these elders do not judge righteously, their churches are unstable. The populations that look to them for divine resolution find none and are frustrated with God because they think these characters are representational of God, and they are not. And the little leaven becomes a little leaven permeates the whole batch and the lawless run the church from the pews. I say, he said, you are magistrates, O Elohims, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men. Why? Because you abandon your highest state by rendering corrupt judgments. You fall like Satan, like one of the princes. You fall into the corruption of Satan. And then he says, Arise, O God, O Elohim, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Well, who is the Elohim who inherits all the nations? The Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are in Christ, your duty and your responsibility is to judge the nations, to judge the, to judge, for you shall inherit the nations rather. You are to judge righteously, to set forth the standards of God in the house of God so that the nations may have light by which to walk. So, I hope in this series of 
four messages, to have blown away the smoke and the corruption largely created by the unwillingness of the church to judge sin accurately in their midst and to liberate persons who are entrapped in schemes of the enemy while preserving value that shows the church as the light of the world. Short of this approach and understanding, the church has no business saying anything about divorce, marriage and remarriage, or marriage, divorce and remarriage, because what it's saying is gobbledygook. It's the tradition of religion rolled up into natural law and spat out as cultural platitudes that seek to curry favor with the state but abandoning, abandoning altogether the original intent of God that a man and a woman in Christ bear the glory of Christ and the church in the holy union of marriage portraying the reconciliation of God and man in the fashion of the woman being reinserted into the man, Christ receiving the church and reconciling men to God in his person as the original intent. It's not about natural law, it's not about cultural prerogatives, it's about the original intent. So, for those who are in Christ, there should not be divorce. There shouldn't be divorce for those who are in Christ. Theirs is a sacred and holy union. It ought to be resolved by the involvement of the church. And if the church will not be involved in righteous judgments, then indeed, it is not the church. So what is the conclusion of the matter? Two married as one are designed to grow in oneness to portray Christ and the church. And that is a sacred union that has all of the support of divine intentionality. That's the standard. It should be preserved even if it requires the judging of matters by the authority of Christ vested in the church. And when the church will not, when the church is not arranged to handle it, to handle his authority, when it's arranged ecclesiastically, institutionally, it cannot handle the authority of Christ. It must be arranged organically where fathers have oversight of sons and everybody is accountable and the matters are long detected well before they become problematic and judged when the, when the persons can be saved out of the tragedy of these things, not wait until attitudes have been hardened and there is no turning away from the hardness of heart. I'm Sam Solon, 
I offer you these things as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. If you've been married, divorced and remarried, one of the things I hope is that you will understand if these things happen when you are unbelievers, when you came out of, of unbelief into the kingdom of God, you left all of that behind. Natural law doesn't tie you to it. If you are married to someone who claimed to be a believer but whose attitudes and conduct were not consistent with the authority of Christ and refused to come under the authority of Christ, even if there was not an adjudication that allowed you to put them away properly, that's the failing of the church, that's not uniquely your failing. God has called you to the continuation of peace. If you're married to a non-believer who is content to live with you, meaning they do not prevent you from your priority of walking with God, live with them. Perhaps they might be saved through your righteous conduct and your children would not be left to, uh, to the winds of chance. If you're living with, with a spouse who claims to be a believer but is living in filthy ways, bring the matter to whatever authority they will recognize for judgment and have it adjudicated. Do not simply live with it because bitterness will surely cloud your understanding of who God is and prohibit you from moving on on your journey. That is the conclusion of the matter and that I leave with you in the fervent hope that finally you have clarity. If you are married, divorced and remarried, you are not a second class citizen. Your destiny has not been aborted. Your purposes in God remain to be fulfilled, so pursue the Lord. To the church leaders I would say stop treating the people who have been divorced and remarried as second class citizens. You have no authority to do that and if your church requires it uh, then you have a decision to make as to whether or not you change the rules of your church or you leave it altogether. And if you won't then I hope the people who are suffering under your uh, under your administration, have the courage to leave you. So be it. Amen.